and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where two friends come together and tell each other stories. But prior to coming together, one host may have texted the other host's husband to ensure the fact that they are not going to tell the same story. Um, these are things. I'm Teresa. I'm Angie. And it was my husband that received the text and my husband who almost muffed the punt yesterday and told me what the story was about. <laughs> But it's not this story. The, I mean, that story that I'm planning is going to be for a couple weeks still. Um, so we're golden because he owned, he was like, hey, what did Teresa talk about? And I was like, uh, it was my turn to talk. And he was like, oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. He's always going to ask you questions. And then I he know. lined right out of the bedroom. Good for him. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I know I can. I can know. I know I cannot trust him. Um, no, he's but, the one you can because he asks before he talks. Yes, OK, <laughs> I just. <laughs> I have diarrhea of the mouth. Now, if you would have told my youngest son, oh, I'd have known days ago. Yeah, I bet. I bet. But he's cute, so. It really makes up for it. And every time he lets it slip, whatever the secret is, he immediately covers his mouth and then makes it that much worse. Oh, yeah. Because we now know you definitely, yeah, that was definitely a secret you blew. Yep. (laughs) But you're cute. Last week, you told us a rousing tale, and we ran out of time, (laughs) and now it is my turn to tell you a rousing tale. I'm excited. I'm excited, too, because I have been sitting on this one, and I had a call with a vendor for a work product, and... I had mentioned like, yeah, I got to get the phone here in, in a little bit because I'm I'm going to you know record a podcast episode. And he's like, oh, yeah, the history podcast. What are you going to tell? Or what are we going to talk about? And so I I info dumped on him and without looking at my <laughs> notes, just like and he went, oh, you you've really researched this. I have questions. They need to be answered. Right. Like (laughs) you can't not just start that. And then like, you know, if you don't want to be cornered in and hear me just talk at you for five minutes, please don't ask these questions because you are inviting (laughs) your own terror. You did this to yourself. Exactly. And there's no, I'm not even going to apologize for it. I'm just going to look at you and say, you're welcome. And then lock out of the meeting. Exactly like Maui does in Moana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to assume you know nothing. Nothing. I'm, I'm going to tell you the story of Francis Pegamable. I'm, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Could you hit me with that name one more time? That's good, because I actually missed a syllable. <laughs> Pegamagobble. That's what it's supposed to be. Pegamagobble. Okay. <laughs> or pega maga pega magabo pega magabo. Ah, yes. Okay. Um, my sources. CBC's the deadliest sniper of World War One was Francis Pega Magabo, an Ojibwe soldier. Parks Canada, Francis Pega Magabo. I keep doing it again. like you don't <laughs> understand. Before you logged in, I was like, Pega Magabo. <sighs> delete half of this pega magago magaba i i tried so freaking hard can we just pega, call him peggy honestly that is the name that he goes by with his with his regiment um oh well i know why <laughs> he's he's native 
well, he's indigenous first nation since he's Canadian. Um, okay. So let me just keep going. Okay. So Francis peg on the gobble, natural historic, national historic person, 1889 to 1952 veterans.gc.ca Francis Pega Magabo. Um, and then CBC's world war one hero, Francis Pega Magabo given Aboriginal day honor by Lucas powers, the curious Canadian history podcast did an episode on him as well. Okay, so now that we can tell how much I have tried my darndest to practice his name, because I've spent this entire chunk of time walking around saying his last name, and then I get on air, hit record, and I blow it. Do um, you ever phonetically write the name out in your notes? I do. His name is pretty phonetically written. And there's just no way to make it. But my tongue just decides to somersault instead of spit it out. It's funner to watch. The look on your face it's is because I'm so error. frustrated every time. I'm like, I tried this. This is like saying Worcestershire sauce. You know, you look at the word and then you go to say it out loud. And you're like, you know what? Not, not going to happen. It's the worst sister ever. Or the worst shire. Yeah. Um, okay. So back to being on topic because I have got pages of notes on this guy because he was something else. Um, Francis... Pegamagabal is born in 1889 in Perry Island Indian Reserve. And that's now the Wasaku Singh First Nation. And so the Canadians, they seem to call their um, indigenous people First Nations. I am probably going to switch back and forth between that because every source has slightly different things. There's also going to call them indigenous. I'm going, I know that there is different groups of people under the indigenous slash first nations like they they want to be called a different thing right but i'm trying to do my best so i'm trying to honor all sides so i'm going to basically tick off everybody instead but try to be my try to be as kind as possible listen um, you can't please everyone you're not a taco no truth um so basically the part that he's from is an ojibwe community that's near perry sound ontario Okay. And in Ojibwe, his name is Binansui, which is the wind that blows off. Now, I wish there was another noun, the wind that blows off, you know, so maybe it's the wind that just pushes items off. Either way, it's a pretty cool name. And yeah. I'd love to know the origin story on how that was picked for him. You know, like, I'm just, I, I have lots of questions. Anytime a name has meaning and people know their meaning. Um, I wonder if it was like the day he was born, the wind was just blowing off the water. You know, like, you know, in the morning, right. you see the that's the vision that I have. That's a really cool. I'm, we're going to go with that because that's what that's what's that's what's offered. You have something on there the table. <laughs> so when he's three years old, his father catches a disease that is unknown and he dies. His mother ends up getting sick with what they presume is the same illness. And she returns home to uh, her clan. They they leave Francis in the care of an of an elder. Okay. And, and I'm sorry. He, did did I'm I'm making sure I didn't hear this wrong. Did the father die? You said father died. Mom got okay. sick, and mom goes back to her clan to be resuscitated. We, we don't hear much about mom later on. Like this is that makes sense. Yeah. 
And so I'm assuming things were pretty bad. And so, you know, he's raised by an elder in, in his tribe. And he spends the his his young childhood really steeped in the customs of both Catholic, uh, you know, Catholic upbringing, but also the Anishinaabe. And the Anishinaabe is is their native. It's both a it's both a people group and a religion. Okay. So like the the Anishinaabe ranges from Ontario all the way through Manitoba. So huge swath of land, you know, <laughs> three quarters of the width of Canada. I'm sorry. Oh, no, all I can think of is Robin Hood Minutites with the big tracts of land. Not Robin Hood Minutites. Um, no, that was Monty Python. In Monty Python. She's got large huge tracts of land. Tracks of land. <laughs> um, well, so his, for lack of better terms, foster dad ends up teaching him to fish and hunt. And his foster mother ends up educating him on traditional medicines. And so he really grows up practicing both the Anishinaabe spirituality and Roman Catholicism, which is a very interesting mix. Yeah, I would have to think so. And because he's born late 1800s, um, he ends up leaving school at the age of 12 and begins working in lumber camps and then fishing stations. This checks. Yeah. Eventually, he ends up working as a Marine fireman. <laughs> okay. I know. I... I don't necessarily, I didn't dig to see what a Marine fireman does. I'm assuming maybe works at fisheries as a fireman. Like these are me guessing. And I, as soon as I see your face, it's like, you know, I could have looked that up, but I don't know. I was just having this image of like, in my brain back then, the ships they would have had for fishing. And this one lone guy, like with his bucket, waiting to that's, put out the fire. That's a pretty sad image. <laughs> um, that's the dang. image I got. Okay. But you know, honestly, now that you mention it, because, you know, I was thinking, you know, fisheries and things like that, but the no, boats were right. all made of wood. Harbors. So were the harbors. So right, you're you know, probably okay. right. So when he's 25, war breaks out in Europe. We're talking the Great War. Okay. And so Pegamagabo, he enlists in the 23rd Regiment, which is also known as the Northern Pioneers. And he, he enlists in August of 1914 and this is pretty much immediately after war is declared now this is kind of weird and it i think we need to take a step back from our caucasian curiosity to realize that this is weird because he's able to enlist really quickly and the one thing that you and i won't catch when we read this is that racism towards the indigenous people was so rampant and that there is a vague policy that's expressed by a dude named Sir Sam Hughes, who's the minister of the militia, that excludes indigenous people from enlisting? Well, I could think of one of two reasons why that could not be the case for him. Go on. Is he either A, passing... In the term of, oh, I'm no. so fair-skinned, I can pass? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay. Um, like, is he so skilled that his uh, function in the regiment would be far superior than not having him there? Because I feel like that could also be a reason. Um, I feel like it's kind of untested. Oh, my God. I love him. <laughs> so describe to the people listening at home what you're seeing. He is the most dapper gentleman I've ever seen. 
<laughs> clean shaven, wearing the full, uh, I wouldn't, I guess, dress suit of, of the military back in 1914. I'm assuming it was probably green. This is a black and white photograph. He's, yeah. I'm also thinking he doesn't have his standard hair or maybe his tribe is one that shaves their head. Unclear because I don't know anything about them. Same. Um, He's got, is that like the writing? It looks what? like a writing crop. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He's got that in his hand and he just looks so regal. Yeah. Like I don't have words beyond regal. This man is so handsome. Perfect jaw. Perfect posture. Every yeah, I bet you he was a model soldier. Well, we're I about say to that find knowing we're about to find out right. what crazy things this man like, did. <laughs> this is going to go down one of several paths, and it's not <laughs> going to be boring. I am here for it. Okay, so no, obviously he is not passing. <laughs> Definitely not. He looks very, very the square jawed indigenous. What you would have thought. What Disney said Cocoam looked like. Exactly. Exactly that. <laughs> that is that is what he looked like. like. When you think of an indigenous man, you unknowingly picture him. Yeah. This is what your time. mind conjures. Yep. Every time. Yeah. So the Curious History podcast posits that perhaps um, Pegamagabo's Nishnabi charms are working for him and helping him to avoid detection because he's already able to to go to basic training and enlist. And before he goes, once he figures out that he is going, he undergoes a series of ceremonies to prepare a warrior for battle. So his whole community rallies around him and really gives him a good send-off. As people's communities should. And here's the crazy thing. These rituals were banned by the Canadian government and enforced both by government officials and Catholic priests. Wow. Church and state got together on that one, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was subjugating <laughs> the non-whites. So at least, you know, we've got something in common. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was one thing that is an unfortunate theme. But it it is very... Either way, he undergoes these rituals. He goes through basic training. And Pegamagabo is assigned two of the war's deadliest jobs. He's working as a scout, running messages from the headquarters to the front lines, and mm -hmm. he's a sniper. These both check for his skill sets, or what we would imagine his skill sets. His be. presumed skill sets, right? Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, while we were riding BB gun or riding BB guns, we were actually this checks. Um, riding bikes into trees, playing with BB guns. You know, honestly, it sounded like a misspeak, and it was, but I think it was one of the more truer statements I've made. <laughs> so sniping ends up being this man's specialty. And his group of people, his regiment, start calling him Peggy because Pegamagabo is quite the mouthful and it? it looks so easy to say it doesn't it but you know that said like <laughs> my grandfather's last name was rickard and everybody called him rick so they shorten everybody's name they just don't have time well yeah we gotta, your your nickname needs a nickname y yeah so one of the things that's written about him and this is an incredible one 
is, quote, his iron nerves, patience, and superb marksmanship help make him an outstanding sniper. Like, oh. Okay. In a, like, in one of the interviews that I got to listen to, um, I think used the phrase, hasten slowly. That has the exact same energy as walk softly and carry a big stick. It does. It has, like, you're just like, oh. Like, so this guy is just super good at being very chill and calm and waiting for the perfect shot. I like him. And so he ends up developing a reputation as a superior scout. So basically, whatever he does, he's just top dog at, is what I'm what I'm picking up. And the first battalion, his group, experiences heavy action almost as soon as they arrive on the battlefield. So the first battalion fight at the second battle of Epes, where the enemy introduces a new weapon, poison gas. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, um, and then he's also there at the SOP. Now his unit was supposed to be in the reserve and it's stationed to the left of an African division. And this was one of those moments where I'm like African division. Oh, like that caught me off guard. Yeah. It's not something you think of when you think of Canada. Well, but see, okay, so Canada was probably fighting somewhere near the Americans, probably fighting, you know what I mean? Like, so it's just a whole group of them. But still, you're just like, Africans had a division. Like, that, I, again, you know, going to a public school in the U.S., that is not something that we really capitalize on, is learning about the other countries, aside from England, who supported us in the war. So eventually, Pegamagabo's unit is tagged, you know, basically tagged in to block off the Germans as they're routing through the African soldiers. So they've picked out, the Germans picked out the Africans and like, we're going to go through there. And then they just basically tag in the Canadians to come in and help. And so it's about that point that the Germans start gassing the Africans. And reports say that Pegamagabo to combat the gas attack is forced to urinate in his handkerchief and hold it over his face to mitigate the worst effects of the chlorine gas. Which I was really honestly hoping you were going to come up with something like, do you remember those rituals that were performed on him before he left? One of them made him immune, immune to the gas. But like, so hold, hold that thought. Okay. Like, you know, like, this isn't a comic book. There's going to be unfortunate things that happen. And in the best comic books, there's unfortunate things that happen. Mm-hmm. So, but either way, the Canadians hold that line and the city of Eves is saved. So after his first year on the Western front, he gets promoted to Lance Corporal and he becomes one of the first Canadians to be awarded the military medal, which apparently is, is part of the British Commonwealth thing. It's not, it's not what Americans get. And the commendation for that reads, for continuous service as a messenger from February 14th, 1915 to February 1916, he carried messages with great bravery and success during the whole of the actions at Epes, Fustebert, and Givenchy. In all of his work, he has consistently shown a disregard for danger and his faithfulness to the du- his duty is highly commendable. But like- I, I love him disregard for danger like i like it i i i want that to be ascribed to me i'm not i don't want to go to war maybe that's why it'll never be ascribed to me but it's still like that is just a baller phrase to say about anybody 
I mean, yeah, it really is. Yeah, especially when, like, the year before you were considering not letting him in the army. Right? Yeah. Hold that thought, because you're going to have more of those moments where you you kind of shake your fist at the powers that be. Okay. So it's during the Somme Offensive in September 1916 that Pegamagabal gets shot in the leg. And many other soldiers would use this as an opportunity to take a ticket home, you know, either get out of the war, get discharged, maybe go to a lighter desk duty service. But not our buddy. Peggy recovers and makes it back in time to return to his unit in Belgium. As you do. So he he spent, as you mentioned earlier, so much of his youth hunting that he turns out to be this uniquely skilled sniper. And he enjoys, I can't say enjoys, he sneaks into no man's land in between the two armies under the cover of darkness. He buries himself in all the <laughs> material around him and waits patiently until a German helmet fills the scope. He doesn't go looking. He just waits and then takes it out. And it's a mix of patience and unerring aim that makes him the deadliest sniper on both sides of the war. Yes. I love him so much. Now, it's kind of hard to figure out just how many kills that Pegamagabo has because he didn't keep records and he didn't have a spotter that he brought with him. That's even more impressive. So even with that, we have 378 confirmed kills. From one shot 500 yards away. And here's the crazy part. He has 300 captures. So I have over 300 kills and 300 captures. Roe took basically 700 people off the battlefield single-handedly. I'm here for it. And he does it all. And this was something that I had to explain to Huffs. I had to sound like I knew what I was talking about this next one. And he like tried to fact check me and I was right. Um, he did this <laughs> all with a Ross rifle. And if you're like me and before this didn't know much about maybe a Canadian rifle, this rifle is referred to as entirely unsuitable for soldiers of the Western Front. Oh, okay. And most Canadians instead opt for the British Lee Enfield rifle. Okay. Now, the Curious Canadian History podcast, they report that when the Ross rifles kept clean, it's the superior weapon. But this is a battlefield and keeping a weapon clean, keeping anything yeah. clean. Is not easy. Yes. But Pegamagabo, he's up for this rifle. That is his. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's going to keep it clean. It's his. Yep. So in November of 1917, the first battalion joined an assault on a village, uh, at the village of Passchendaele. And it's here, roughly 20,000 Allied soldiers crawled from shell crater to shell crater through water and mud with two British divisions, the Canadian corps, the Canadian Corps attacked and took the village, holding it for five days until reinforcements arrived. The allies suffer 16,000 casualties at Passchendaele. Of the original 20,000? Yes. Ooh, that's a hard loss on that one. Corporal Pegum Galbo earns his first bar to the military medal which basically means he earned it again. Mm -hmm. And that citation reads, this NCO, non-commissioned officer, did excellent work. 
Before and after the attack, he kept in touch with the flanks, advising the units that he had seen. This information proving the success of the attack and saving valuable time in consolidating. He also guided the relief to its proper place after it had become mixed up. Basically, he sorted things out. When, he sounds like the man that gets the job done. Yeah, when literally everybody, more bodies than humans. More past mm-hmm. tense than present. You guys are saying more f- former humans? Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. So this is this is one of those things where, you know, like, as much as I don't know about World War II, I know a lot about World War II. And I know... Node. I knowed absolutely nothing about <laughs> World War One, and so reading about this, I'm like, "Holy cow!" So, during this whole thing, he was well liked by his fellow soldiers, and they seemed to believe that he was protected by otherworldly powers. He had decorated his tent with protective images, including an elk, which is the sign of his tribe, and he was taught how to draw these Nishnabe images prior to heading out to war. So you think about it, 16 out of 20, unalive, and he's still standing. And one story tells of his unit being stuck in German crossfire. They're unable to move. They're pinned down in the rain and the mud. And one of the officers gives him some tobacco and earnestly requests that Peggy try to do something about the rain. Peggy Magalbo prays to the sky spirits, and the weather lets up just enough to allow his men to escape. I mean, like, if you weren't superstitious before. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like, geez. Okay, so there's rumors of this indigenous man who's able to invoke the sky spirits, and it spreads like wildfire. Okay. So later on, Pegamagalbo's men were caught in a mustard gas attack, and the winds were pushing hard, and the gas is just coming straight for the Canadians. And then it's at that moment that General Alderson brings tobacco directly to Pegamagabo and asks him if he could do anything about this. So Pegamagabo does a Nishnabi ritual and asks the spirits and the winds immediately change and push the gas back to the German lines. Was his name not about pushing the wind? Dude, that is actually a brilliant connection that I hadn't made. You did not. I make didn't that make that connection. Yeah, this is why wild. you're here because I get wild. so lost in the details that I forget to see some of the things. That's impressive. I would immediately be like, "Give the man all the tobacco he needs." This- right? Like it, it's <laughs> all his. He actually is the one who doles it out to us when he feels we've earned it. <laughs> in fact, so Pegamagabo ends up earning his second bar to the military medal during the final months of the First World War battle at Scarp. And this commendation reads, during the operations of August 30th, 1918, so he's been at war for years, at Oryx Trench near Upton Wood, when his company was almost out of ammunition and in danger of being surrounded, this NCO went over the top under heavy machine gun fire, machine gun and rifle fire, and brought back sufficient ammunition to enable the post to carry on and assist in repulsing heavy in enemy counterattacks. So he he went he crossed the line and stole their ammo. Is that what I'm understanding? No, from he this? jumped out of his trench while machine gun fire, rifle fire is happening. 
goes to the next trench, gets more ammunition from the allies, and then hightails it back. Gotcha. Okay. Making sure I understand. Right. I mean, because either way, that's a baller move, not one I would want to do. Yeah, no. I mean, I don't think I want to sign up for war in general, but let alone that, you're just like, holy cow, like this man is just absolutely incredible. Like the more I kept learning about him, the more I was just like, and then what happened? (laughs) And then what you do? (laughs) Right. I mean, it was just, it was insane. So if you really get the chance, listen to the podcast on him done by the Curious Canadian History, because they, they did a lot. They were able to get a lot of really neat info and a lot of it, the the stuff I found was the most fascinating comes from Pegamagabo's family and the interviews that the family have done since he's passed on. At one point, there is a story of uh, Pegamagabo comforting another soldier. And this is prior to them getting shipped off. And the soldier's like just really full of anxiety and fear because he's headed off to war. As yeah, most people would be less than excited about that. Yeah. And Pegamagabo tells him, if you're already thinking this way, if you're already afraid of getting killed, it's going to be that fear that gets you killed. It usually is. Yeah. It's just you're you're so caught up in your own brain. He's like, so what you need to do is you need to take apart a dead tree branch and chew on it a while. Don't swallow it. Just keep it in your mouth. And if you do this, you'll be able to pass through the lines. Okay. So basically, practice mindfulness. If you're just focused on the tree branch, be here, be here. You know, don't swallow it. Focus on it. Be here. That's really clever. I mean, like, I'm assuming it's a it is a ritual that that he was taught to go through. But to me, I'm I'm looking at them like that's mindfulness. Being it really is, yeah. So later that soldier finds himself struggling with these thoughts in the middle of battle because that seems appropriate. <laughs> and he remembers what Pegamagabo says and he does the branch ritual and passes right on through without being injured. Get it, buddy. And you're just like, ah, oh. like I just, my heart gets so happy hearing that. And so by the time he's discharged in 1919, Pegamagabo is the most decorated First Nation soldier in Canadian history. Full stop. I I have nothing but pride for him. I mean, like, so this story was actually recommended by a connection of mine on LinkedIn, who I had told us doing a pod, you know, history podcast. And she goes, you need to to talk about this dude. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll add it to my list. And she says, he's part of my tribe. That's awesome. And that just like, okay. And I've been sitting on this one for a while and I finally like opened it up and started doing the research. Like I should have done this one months ago, but here we are. So I'm just, I'm so excited to learn more about him because do you remember when I told you that he had earned that military medal in 1916 with two bars? Mm -hmm. He becomes one of 39 Canadians to have that same honor. Total. That's it. That's impressive. One of 39. That's the equivalent of receiving the medal three times in a row. He's also, I mean, he's kind of busy, (laughs) right? Like, hold on a minute. You know, do we have enough room for these 300 men? I pulled alive off of the field. Where can we put them? Yeah. 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 They're all chained together. Where do we put them? (laughs) Yeah. They're all safe. Just maintain. Um, 
he ends up also getting <laughs> that the... one's sketchy watch his eyes <laughs> <laughs> that's me angie that's me <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> um so he ends up also getting awarded the 1914 15 star the british war medal and the victory medal like so again most decorated first nations man that's impressive for like any human get it yeah i mean but he he just did it better harder faster stronger like just (laughs) all, all of it he did it all better um New documents are showing that by the time he was discharged in 1919, he'd risen to the rank of company sergeant major, which is several ranks above corporal. Well, I mean, he deserved every one of them. Hell yeah. But honestly, if he ended up just being a belligerent a-hole that stayed his original rank, we'd all still support him. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) So hearing that he just kept earning, you know, more and higher ranks, doing more and more with medals, just having the respect of of his fellow soldiers it just it really it warms my cold dead heart fills you with tingly warms and do you remember how during your podcast or your episode last week how you brought the prince of wales and i went Mm -hmm. oh because i didn't know if we would have time for mine um in 1919 he's one of nearly 200 veterans to be decorated with his awards from the prisoning the visiting Visiting? prince I, I combined Prince and, and you visiting. sure did. You're I'm, welcome. I'm really impressed. Honestly, <laughs> it's how I try to get through things. I mash up all of the words together and then you get one word, which is the entire story. Have and fun we all that. understand it. it. Well, those of us whose brains write in cursive. Yep. Understand so, it. The Prince of Wales is visiting and he ends up being the one to award Pegamagabo his medals. And this is the future King Edward VIII. And it happens at the Canadian Exhibition in Toronto. That is awesome. So despite physically surviving the war, he kind of has some other issues when he makes it out. And in March 1919, his medical chart reports that he's suffering from exhaustion psychosis. I think he's probably, well, I mean, he's been carrying the entire Allied front himself. Right. He also has suspected dementia. And is suffering depression and partial loss of memory function, unquote. So would we consider today all of these like post-traumatic stress? Exactly. Basically, that's exactly what he has. And that was, as it all neatly ties up now. That is literally the next line I was going to read. Oh, sorry. No, are you kidding? The (laughs) fact that you can like engage and not just like be a blank wall as I just vomit upon you. Well, if I was just a blank wall while you vomited upon me, this would be a really boring podcast, wouldn't it? It would be. It would be. involve a lot of cleanup afterward. So thank goodness for that. No, I'm going to spew back. Thank you so much. Please and thank you. <laughs> so that was in March. But in May, his medical supervision reports that at the time, there's no delusions of persecution and no hallucinations. His judgment appears good, and there's no evidence of mental disease, and then he's discharged back to civilian life. Okay. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. And first off, I didn't realize that back during World War II or World War I, we were treating PTSD. I thought, and this is me being 
uneducated that we just kind of, well, you'll get over it and then cast them back into society. Now, granted, just a couple of months isn't a ton of help, but it's more than I thought we offered. Well, I think it's more than I thought we offered, too, but I still think it's less than we could have even back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, we don't we don't give mental health the credence it deserves. Especially not with the military. Oh, God, no. Especially pre-1980 or even 1990. Yesterday. Let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So 12 minutes ago. Right. Yeah. So as cool as this is that he's kind of overcome the larger hurdles that his, his medical chart dictated, he isn't quite like his fellow soldiers in the sense that his fight doesn't end with the armistice. He's a decorated veteran, but when he returns to Canada, he remains an Indian. And that means he is a ward of the state. And so so he is, and that I read that line and that made me so angry because he's denied the rights of a Canadian citizen. He can't vote. And as it is with the case of all first nations people at the time, in every aspect of his life, from his ability to leave the reserve to his military pension, it's controlled by an Indian agent who's basically just a powerful white bureaucrat assigned to oversee all indigenous pe- people in his jurisdiction. I hate this for him. It is I hate, ridiculous. I hate it for all of them, but you would especially think that someone that served your country, regardless, would have all of the same trappings if you will yeah as the guy standing next to him because why not what is your excuse if you can serve the the war or the the army if you can serve jury duty if you are required to pay taxes you deserve a passport Mm -hmm. nice roads the ability to vote for your government Mm -hmm. like it's two sides of the same coin your paycheck yeah like to pull money out of his bank account, at least this is what it was for the Americans, you would need to have your guardian do it for you. And they take, a, uh, at least in America, they would take a commission off of that if they chose to give you any of it at all. I hate this. Yeah. People out here be pissing me off. Yep. And so I read that and I got so angry on his behalf. And when you read most of the accounts about him, they conveniently gloss over all of the issues that the First Nations people suffered, still suffer. I mean, that checks. Yeah. It's like, hey, he did all these great things. Most decorated, deadliest sniper. The end. And it's like, but like. <sighs> what did you're you missing... do for him afterwards? What did you you're... do for him before? Like, we're still, we've still got pages of notes. We're still only halfway through his life. These people pissing me off so bad. So he goes through all of this, but then some cool things happen. He reestablishes himself within his tribe and his, I'll say his clan. Um, Cause they, they kept using the word clan. So I'm assuming mm-hmm. there's a delineation between clan and tribe. I'm assuming clan is smaller than tribe. I think I don't, I don't know for sure. This is my ignorance out loud. Owning um, it. I think, and I could be, I could be wrong. So if I'm wrong, someone tell me, but I think, clan is specific to like you have your tribe which is the greater people group yeah clan would be like your family and your extended family okay um but within that tribe there can be multiple clans that's what i would assume that's the way i understand it it is it varies from nation to nation like 
Iroquois nation versus, you know, so on and so forth. But I think that's the general gist. And that's what I would have told you if you'd have said it. But as soon as I start talking, I realize like I'm on uncertain ground. And so (laughs) I would just own that. I'm like, I am now speaking out of ignorance. This is not a position of strength I'm coming from. So please aim softly. Uh, My only qualifications are that I just took an indigenous, an indigenous first nations class last semester. And that was one of the first things that was taught. So it was months ago. All right. But that's my understanding. You had a formal definition at some point in your life, as opposed to me making meaning out of crayons and the back of a cereal box. I think you were close to right, though. Okay. (laughs) Um, So anyhow, he reestablishes himself with his own clan and he meets and marries a woman named Eva Tranche. And together they end up having eight kids. Now, they end up losing two of their sons in their early childhoods. But, you know, six out of eight, those are some decent numbers for early 1900s. Yeah, Early really. to, you know, mid. Um, in 1921, Pegamagabo begins to advocate for change. He, first, as a leader of his people, he's elected chief of what is now the Wasaksing First Nation and has frequent clashes with his area's Indian agent, John Daly. So, I mean, you know, he wants to do things like withdraw money from his bank account or um, I would like to go to the IHOP. Yeah, basically <laughs> leave the reservation to go to Main Street to do whatever it is that us white people decide to do freely. And it ends up not being a good idea. So him and his fellow band counselors embark on a letter writing campaign and they're trying to increase the power of the elected indigenous officials. But Ottawa insists that he can only communicate through daily. Who hates him? Because, yeah. That makes for a great agent. I mean, I feel like that's kind of what they looked for back in the day. I'm thinking probably. I'm sure yeah. there was there was money in it for them to be. It's like. Uh, we don't really want to deal with these people. So how good are you at gatekeeping? Because we want you to control the insanity that we feel is them and not us because we feel we're great. That w- the essentially the insanity that we cause. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Um... We keep moving them and not honoring our own treaties. And we want you to deal with the fallout. Okay, bye. We, we don't want to hear the, how badly we've messed them up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's chief until 1925, and he resigns due to political reasons. Um, his clan views him as too traditional. Oh, okay. I don't uh, know why I, di- I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> so Pegamagabo, he wants to expel all non-Indigenous people from the reservation. And that part I'm sort of fine with. I mean, they had it coming. Right. Like, you know what? It, it, we don't give you much, but if it's your land, I feel like you deserve that right. Um, they they kind of get up in arms when he also says that they should kick out people of mixed ancestry off the reservation. Oh, okay. And I'm I didn't like, see that coming either. That's a bit hard. Um, so basically you're telling mothers to give up their children because their children are mixed. Could the like, mother not go with them? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But he he's advocating for this and they're like, hold, hold up a minute. Hold up a minute. Yeah. Okay. 
So he really wants to return to an entirely older political system in which the elders have a lot more influence among the people. So the community is like, we just, we just can't with you. We've got to modernize somehow. We have to keep, you know, maybe our children. And, you know, <laughs> it helps. It, it kind of keeps everybody a little calmer when kids and grandkids are still here. Um, but either way, like that was the one thing that I kind of went, ooh, that hurts a bit. You know, because you think about it, it's like, you know what? Everybody who's wrong just needs to get out the door. That's fair. It's like, I'm with that. And then it keeps going. I'm like, okay, I, I don't know if I'm, I, I, I get, I get cagey about it. So when I hear everybody else get a little up in arms, I'm like, I feel you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would agree on that one. But even though he resigns, it's during this, this time as chief that you really look at his full, his full career and tenure. He's addressed a number of treaty transgressions and he continues to try to communicate through John Daly and it just doesn't quite work. In 1943, actually, let me back up. Oh, okay. So he does all this stuff. His people call for his resignation. And that's, and I get it. I get it. You know, um, in 1943 and then in 1945, he attended convention conventions that brought indigenous leaders from across Canada together. And it's the second convention that results in the founding of something called the North American Brotherhood. So he's really trying to bring together all of these top leaders from the different groups and like get them to organize so that they can actually stand up to the government, which I deeply respect. Mm -hmm. And in 1945, Pegamagabo is elected the Supreme Chief of the Native Independent Government. And this is yeah, an, right? Like, I was just like, first off, I didn't know it existed. Secondly, stoked to hear that somebody with his background is doing it. Um, this is an early indigenous civil rights organization, and it's the precursor to the Assembly of the First Nations. Okay. And their whole goal is to give more autonomy to the First Nations people. Perfect. And yeah, I have zero problem. You know what? Should have happened yesterday. Whatever you're asking for, <laughs> it should be yours. It should have happened already. Shouldn't have been taken from you in the first place. But here we are. Yep. So... During this time, the people seek his guidance on issues that range from unsolved land or unresolved land claims to curtailed fishing and trapping rights. Because of of course, we have to mm -hmm. take away the thing that their people have been doing for a millennia. Or more. Yeah. And yeah. So I, I just get more up in arms. But it's by the 1950s, Pegamagabo's war injuries, they start catching up to him, despite the fact that he was able to asked the sky spirits to push the gas back towards the Germans. He does end up sustaining quite a bit. And so his lungs are so weakened from the gas exposure that he needs to sleep sitting upright to keep them from filling with fluid. Oh. Which is a really unfortunate situation. And he ends up dying yeah. of a heart attack at age 52 or in 1952 at age 61 at St. Joseph's hospital in Perry sound, Ontario. So his legacy lives on as an example of a life of service, determination, and is renowned for his bravery, both as a soldier in World War I and his ceaseless struggle for his people's rights. Yeah, and I got, buddy. got a couple of things to end on to try to bring it up to a 
mediocrely higher note. <laughs> Listen, he wasn't eating any puppies. So <laughs> I mean, it's not as dark as I could have gone. Um, there's a bronze statue of Pegamagabo in Perry Sound, you know, near where his tribe is located or his clan is located. On his arm is an eagle, which is a spirit animal, and there's a caribou behind him to represent his clan. His Ross rifle is on his back and his military medals are on permanent exhibit in the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. Pretty cool. And let me show you the picture of his bronze statue before I read to you a quote from a family member of his. Actually, let me. Oh, that's beautiful. So when reflecting of his life, Francis Pegamagabo rarely spoke of his military compliment accomplishments. However, his son Duncan recalls being told that his father was responsible for capturing 300 soldiers. Quote, my mother, Eva, told me he used to go behind enemy lines, rub shoulders with the enemy forces, and never get caught. Duncan also remembers that Pegamagabo, quote, felt very strongly about his country. Mostly see he sees his father as a peaceful man. He was always saying how we have to live in harmony with all living things in this world. I love that statue so much. Mm -hmm. it, it, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm totally. No. <laughs> it's it's a life-size statue of Pegamagabo. And it took the artist a year. I was going to say it had to take some time, right? Like, yeah. it's so, if it weren't, it's bronze, right? You said? Yep. If it weren't bronze, I would have a really hard time believing it was fake. It was not an actual person, an actual caribou, and an actual... Is that an eel? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I couldn't... It's beautiful. So he's... Is he standing like uh, he's... Is he standing with a foot on the caribou? I'm a little bit confused no, about that. No, it okay. looks like... Let me see if I can increase the size of this for you. So there is a rock with the caribou oh, station behind yeah, yeah. him. Okay. Okay. And his I... foot is on the rock, one foot slightly more elevated than the other cuz the rock is at you know an, an incline. Right, that makes sense. Okay. At first I thought the caribou was laying down and he had like one foot on it, mm -hmm. but I thought that didn't seem to be the right symbology. So <laughs> I could so I had to ask, I wasn't quite sure. That statue was unveiled roughly about 100 years after his experience in the war wow so it took us quite a while to pull our heads from our asses and checks. acknowledge the incredible man that he was but i just i found myself just like holy crap holy crap like the more i read about him every fact gets bigger and bigger like he's yeah. one of those he's one of those uh things of legend like so incredible and so renowned for his ability to call upon the unseen that a general comes by and is like hey i got some tobacco for you can you, you do me a solid can you do something with this yeah. i want to know more about this general too because it seems like he he had a uh, enough of a relationship at least with him to understand their spirituality right or at least was desperate enough and had heard the rumor. Yeah, at the yeah, at the very least. Like I right. want to know what he was thinking. 
Oh, I love him. Yeah. Pegamagabo. <laughs> it's you know? really hard to say. <laughs> and it, like I said, it's it. You see it spelled out. And you're like, yeah, that's phonetic. I can get through that. Yeah. And your tongue goes. We haven't done that combination. These letters so, don't work like this. <laughs> I'm going to make you sound like a moron for the next nine pages. <laughs> well, I mean, it wouldn't be any fun if we didn't have some kind of uh, tripping over our own tongue problem, right? I mean, I trip over literally everything else. So what's a word? <laughs> but yeah, no, I absolutely had such a blast learning about him. And you should have heard, heard about him months ago, but... There's a lot of story ideas, and this was his. I am going to have a really hard time coming anywhere near the legend of this man. Because it's just like, no matter how you you <laughs> cut it, it's like, nah, he was a badass. He was the top sniper and the most decorated indigenous. And that one time he brought 300 people home for dinner. Right. <laughs> Like, uh, I don't think he brought them all home at one time, but like to hear <laughs> his son say that, like, he would just go in like shoulder to shoulder. And I told that to to Hubs and he his his response was basically, did he pass as white? And I was like, no, 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 he didn't. And I showed him a picture and he goes, yeah, uh, I, that would kind of stick out in a German trench. A little, a little bit. Just 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 a bit. Yeah. I'm well. Oh, so. I always think about this when you think about just your average soldier on the ground, especially during World Wars One and Two. They were not always the worst people on the planet, right? Like most of these guys on any side were just trying to survive and They're were called into this people. war, right? Yeah, like this isn't necessarily their fight; it's just their flag, it, right? Exactly. So, like, it kind of reminds me of the the christmas holiday when they oh. ceased fire and played soccer and it took forever to get yeah. them to fight again like saying christmas hymns and yeah so why why i guess to me it's hard to to not believe that someone coming into your trench and just having a chat with you would be out of the would be considered unreal to happen because most mm. of those soldiers were just trying to survive on both sides so yeah. Yeah. But I mean, how do you sneak over there without getting caught? <laughs> so many I have a times. lot of questions. <laughs> like when 16,000 out of 20 are crossed off the census and you make it out and you do it again and again and again and again and again. Like, yeah. I wonder. Oh, who was it? There's, um, there's a, Oh, I'm gonna have to find it. There's a chief that like was one of the last war chiefs to, and yes. you have to, you know, like yes. touch the fat or touch the. You know what I'm trying to say? Um. Oh yeah. I okay. Hold on. Uh, I think I know his name, but if I say it out loud, I'm gonna be completely wrong. <laughs> That's I thought great. about him a lot as I did this story too. Joe Medicine Crow. Yes. Yes. I knew it was Joe, but I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember the rest of it. The medicine one is what I was like, no, you're wrong there. Don't say that out loud because it'll be wrong. <laughs> so really, like you have to touch the enemy before you kill the enemy. So the four tasks, the enemy. touch a living enemy, 
take his take an enemy's weapons, steal an enemy's horse, and lead a victorious war party. I think he probably did all of those things. He I don't hear anything about him getting a horse. He had that riding whip, I'm just saying. I mean, he did have the riding crop, but I've I've a feeling what made Joe Medicine Crow unique is he actually got to stables and a literal freaking horse. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the the stars aligned just right for Joe Medicine Crow to really pull off that hat trick. <laughs> I like that you call it a hat trick. <laughs> <laughs> or just I, uh, yeah. I did I did diminish it a bit, but it's really an incredible feat. And we should, I, I'm really, I, I want to make sure that for, um, indigenous history month that like, kind of, we tell more of these stories. Cause I know it's not mm-hmm. necessarily indigenous history month, but I kind of think these stories should be told all year long anyhow, but with intense focus during those times to surface them. I agree. And it's really exciting to me that this story is publishing or airing, uh, right after our Thanksgiving. So not the Canadian one, cause that was a month ago. But a happy Thanksgiving and remember that this is all stolen land. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting dynamic, like thought dynamic when you think about the fact that so many people fled Europe for religious persecution. Only to perpetrate it here. Right. Right. Like religious persecution and tyranny. And yet here we are doing the exact same thing yeah hurt people hurt people yeah yeah it's it's really um i just i would have thought that those people maybe not the initial you know few hundred or whatever but the people that came after 1495 like in the 1600s in the late 1500s would have seen their actions sooner like why is this something we're still dealing with today in the modern society that we have why is it something that is still not understood does that make sense i think we have a lot of unresolved trauma and responsibilities as to how we got that trauma you know like absolutely yeah we parent in ways that our parents parented us, regardless of knowing that our parents messed us up. Yeah. And because we're perpetrating the same sins done to us, our children are doomed to repeat it as well. It's the sins of the father. And in this case of, of, you know, stolen land, it really is like, I just, I think as a parent, when you think specifically from parent to child, like, you think about what you didn't appreciate as a kid and you promise to not be that way, right? Yeah. Like you would think as a persecuted individual coming from the old world to the new world, your goal would be peace. But I, okay, so you said something interesting and I don't know if you recognize that there is an internal contradiction. It doesn't sound like it until you really break down how the brain works. I don't want to be like my father. I don't want to be like my parents. I don't want to do what happened to me. The problem is our brains don't hear the word don't in the same way. Like it doesn't ascribe meaning to it. And so we do the things because that is the thing. You can't not do something. 
Instead, you have to plan a positive action. Right. You know, and right. that's the hard part. It's like, instead of saying, I'm not going to push the same sins that were pushed upon me, you have to like say, I am going to be a change of positive good. And that positive good is going to look like these three things. Right. So that being said, that's that was exactly what I was thinking. Like, we may not be aware of what was what crimes were committed right to us but we are aware of how they made us feel right so as an adult looking back i know i want my child to feel this this and this so as from a historical context if i'm a puritan quote unquote i want the people that i'm cohabitating with whether it's in the same region or the same village or the same whatever I want to live in peace with them. Like you have to be intentional in your action, right? Yeah. And obviously that was not that was less the case than more the case. Mm. Time and time and time and time and time again, right? Yeah. So it's just so interesting to me that even in those peaceful groups of people, the intentionality wasn't always there because that's where it, what it boils down to is being intentional. How do I want to behave? Yeah. Even if I don't actually know don't actually have the words to de- to describe what's been done. I can be intentional in my actions to make sure I'm being the best version of me for the people around me. And I can live in peace with that. Ruth. But people don't. <laughs> I mean, it's easier said than done, right? Oh, absolutely. Because it's a, it's a ton of work to actually accomplish that. Well, and it's, I mean... It's a ton of work. The first step of no, of realizing you're part of the problem. And I think like when I look at my own history, like most of the time, I'm not part of the problem. I'm the whole damn problem aside <laughs> from the initial start of it. Right. Like there's the catalyst and then there's everything my actions have accomplished. So there you go. Like recognizing that you're not just. A player especially in historical context you are not just a victim oh you yeah, are no. also victiming someone else victimizing someone else to mm-hmm. in this yeah. you know it's it's that main character step. energy and recognizing that the main character can also be a villain yeah and not the cool kind that we like the morally gray ones <laughs> no the one where you're just like Ooh, oh that guy. Um, that gets discussed in class Mm, Hitler. We are going to need to dissect that one. (laughs) Also, this week's therapy brought to you by our history class. (laughs) Right? It's like, ooh, ooh. Well, and on that note, if you have enjoyed unpacking the rather convoluted, complex history of us messing it up and probably joining it yourself... Rate, review, subscribe, uh, email us. Let us know what are the other stories that we haven't covered that we probably ought to. Like, those are things that we want to get in on. And if you're like, you know what? You really need to cover blank. Hit us up, unhinged.historypod at gmail.com. We read every email that comes through. Sometimes twice. Right. (laughs) We might screenshot them and also send them to those around us to be like look what was said these are all things Mm -hmm. and on that note 
Goodbye. Bye.